Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1161, with guest Philip Loriano. Recorded Thursday, June 18th, 2015. Hey, guess what? We're back at NDC at the Fishbowl. This is .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And, uh, well, you know, I just love being here. Yep, we have such a good time, and uh, it's crazy as always, but it's morning on the second day, and we got a thing. We're going to do video next year. Uh, bring, a, you know, bring a couple of video cameras and just give people a sense of what it's like here. Yeah, just <laughs> what it's like to work all day. Yeah. People wonder what we do. That's what we do. That's kind of fun. Anyway, uh, I've got uh, more in the C-Sharp Gotchas series. Oh, right, yes, your series. For Better Know a Framework, so let's roll it. All right, dude, make me sad again. All right, so this is uh, from tinyurl.com slash csgotchas. It's from a thread on Stack Overflow. Uh, people are asking for their most hated C-sharp gotchas, and there's some great uh, submissions here. One, one really good one is the Heisenberg watch window. What? So you know the Heisenberg principle, right? Which yes. is observing the observer principle, well, I suppose. Well, the observer effect is really what it's about. The Heisenberg uncertainty effect is what, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah it's mixing up two different things. It is, you're right. Yeah. It is uh, mixing up two things. Observer effect's one thing. This is what he calls it, the Heisenberg watch window. So let's say you have a, a, a class, and then there's a, uh, in that class, there's a, a property getter. And in that property getter, you test to see if your private member for that property is null. And if it is, you call maybe a, you know, create my object method or something to return it, right? right? Great. Now you have some code somewhere that says, you know, my object property dot do stuff, yep. you know? So you want to set a breakpoint on that, uh, in the getter, uh, on the line that calls create my object, you know, to see, to debug it, to yep. see what happens. And you do that and you step in the code, but the breakpoint does not hit. And so you step up and you find out that my object is never null. <laughs> What's going What's on going here? What's going on? Well, let's say uh, in this case, you've got a watch window open, specifically the autos window. Right. Which displays the values of the variables and properties relevant to your project or a previous line of execution. So when you hit your breakpoint, the watch window decided that you'd be interested to know the value of my object. So behind the scenes, ignoring any of your breakpoints, it right. went and calculated the value of my object for you, including the call to create my object that sets the value of it, oh, of the private member. It's really trying to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a gotcha. Nice. And there is a, an addendum to this, 
which is if you decorate, and this is from Christian Hayter, H-A-Y-T-E-R, that's an unfortunate name, but okay, not, <laughs> not a hater, but Hayter, we'll call it, decorate your property with debugger browsable, paren, debugger browsable state dot never, or debugger display, and then in parentheses, uh, double How quotes. would you ever figure that out? Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. But, you know, that it's one of those things that could probably drive you crazy for a good long time before yeah. you figure, oh, the watch window. Yeah, right. But why would you think? Why would you think that? Like, why would how you would you, think you ever that? discover that? Yeah. Except to Google this weird behavior, try to figure out what's going on. Right. And you probably would, and you probably would have ended up at Stack Overflow. Yep. But, or you could just listen to .NET Rocks. There you and go. By osmosis, become a much more brilliant developer. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, all right, Richard, who's talking to us? Uh, so I jumped onto the Wayback Machine and pulled show 704, which we did with Philip when we talked about Nemeral. And that, dude, I can't believe it. It's from t- October of 2011. And here's this awesome comment I thought was super relevant to what we're talking about today. It's from Johan Ulrich, who says, hey, thanks for the very interesting e- episode. Nemeral was immediately promoted to the top of my must-try list. A similar system could be very interesting for writing some high-performance stuff in non-IL languages, using constructing satyrs, uh, GPGU, or inline assemblers comes to mind. Mm. Another interesting thing was the thought of personal compilers. You get to work on a system you really know that's been optimized for your way of doing things, a problem that could be cooperation and working in the same code, but there should be some solution to that problem. So thanks again for the great podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Compilers. I agree We've had a couple of conversations about compilers. I'm really looking forward to digging into this with uh, another with one today. Yeah, for sure. Johan, thanks so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social medias that we're using. We post all our shows on Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we can read those as well. And we'll send you a mug. And we also tweet at Carl Franklin and at Rich Campbell. Feel free to tweet us anytime. Absolutely. And before we go any further, let me tell you, Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts and .NET Rocks guests, of course. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest. Philip Loriano is the technical team lead for Fairfax Media in Australia and has been working in software development since 1999. You know, that year that they had Moonbase Alpha. That's right. And the whole and the world was going to collapse for the year Y2K bug. That's right. It didn't go well. When he is not working on making his team awesome, you can usually find him creating his own compilers and implementing the CLR metadata specs for fun. Oh. Uh. All right, well, more about that soon. Philip is the author of LinFu and Hero IOC Container Frameworks, which make extensive use of IL Voodoo to make cool and productive things happen for the common language runtime. He also has been a two-time speaker for NDC, Oslo 2011 and 2012, and now 2015. Welcome. (laughs) Time flies. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of embarrassed it was 2011 we last talked to you, because you've always worked on some interesting edges of... The CLR and IL space. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not something that you get paid for, but it's 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 enjoyable work. <laughs> there must be a never-ending puzzle, and I I just gotta ask what what was the thing that made you go? You know, 
I think I'd like to build a compiler. Um, well, I'll blame it on Francis Buma. Okay. <laughs> ah, LLVL. Yeah. yeah, that was the one that, that, that was the project that literally kick-started a lot of the stuff I got into metaprogramming. Even Nemeral had a, a tie to LLVM as well, right? They did, but um, <clears throat> I think with, with Nemerly is just that it never really quite caught on. Yeah. And mm. it's just, the you know, retrospectively, you just learn that it's not just about having a good, good language, it's also having a great language with good marketing. Right. Making it, getting people on board. Yeah. Because part of that is just the, the size and scale of the community gives its own validity to something. Yeah, pretty much. And it was a great language for, for its time. It's just that it never really picked up. Yeah. So, it's always a challenge. So before we uh, continue on here, we're coming up on new releases of .NET and Windows and all of that stuff, and Roslyn has a lot to do with it. And yep. um, you know, it's been in the works for a long time. You must have played with it yourself. What do you think about the the whole prospect of going forward in a Roslyn world and everything that they've sort of rewritten? Well, it, it certainly opens up a lot of possibilities when you have a compiler that's completely open. You could just fork it, do whatever you want with it, and see how it works. Uh, I think the challenge now is that a lot of the new development that's coming out is really going to come from the grassroots rather than some some other team in Microsoft that yeah. might be working on this for like three or four years, and then we're only lucky to see it come out after you know two or three years when they say, "Hey, well, we're going to open source it." Right. And uh, isn't it also an argument that? Now that it's an open source project, we have to really talk about whether or not you want to add more features. Like at some point, isn't the language done? Like you, you know, you're only going to do harm to it by adding stuff that's kind of unnecessary. Well, what was that principle again, where everything evolves until it, it eventually sends an email? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they haven't gotten that far no, yet. Not quite there yet, but, but it's close. It's still an API call away. But 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 so you've looked into Roslyn. Obviously, you can't have not, right? Well, I mean, I I, I look into some of the features. Like I, I really like the idea of immutable trees right. and that's really good for scaling because you need to be able to spawn subcompilers or interpreters and just run through it without yeah. having to wor- worry about threading or any kind of concurrency. Yeah. So, so what is what is Microsoft up against when, you know, they're completely rewriting all of these things and uh, you know, making new versions of ASP.NET for example based on Roslyn. Do you think that uh, you think they can pull it off? Well, I'm sure they could pull it off, but I they I don't envy them in the sense that they've got several million users that they have to answer to. So it's a lot of pressure to be able to put these compilers together without actually breaking things. Yeah. And at the same time, they also have to balance the needs of the community because now it's all in the open and they can mm-hmm. have these discussions, these meetings about what uh, features they want to put in right. as, as well as have the notes about whether what works and what doesn't. Yeah. So it almost seems like it, it slows down... Um, release time but maybe by release time it's really going to have it's really going to be a lot more robust because they're addressing all the potential gotchas and problems up front that they may not have seen because of all that community involvement. Well yeah I mean it's basically development by committee because you've got instead of like 10 people inside of a boardroom in Microsoft, you've got like several million devs that could actually just look sure. at the source code and say, there's something wrong here, this, this needs to be improved, or here's a patch that right. will, will fix this. We always have that whammy of, dude, you broke my code, right? Like, this used to compile on the old version of C Sharp, and now it doesn't compile on the new one. Is, C, is the C Sharp compiler wrong, or is my code wrong? 
knowing that it's a C-sharp compiler that changed. Hmm. That's always the problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, historically, I always got around that. When I got annoyed, I said, okay, forget it. Ditch the compiler. Let's go straight to IL. Yeah. Yeah, you like living in IL, do you? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's a fun thing because it really changes the way you see uh, the common language runtime. It's, it's, and when you start looking back at the different versions of C Sharp, you start to see that when you look at C Sharp 1, it is really the equivalent, uh, the analogous relationship that you have there is what we would have between C and assembler. Yeah. Because it's such a thin layer over the CLR right. that it's just a one-to-one thing. And it's, it's amazing. And then when you get to 2 and 3 and, and beyond, then that's when you start to see them start building stuff on top of it. Much greater abstractions. Yep. That's cool. So it still begs the question, why would you ever build your own compiler? Why not? It's <laughs> perfectly legitimate question. It's like, you know, why would you pl- climb a perfectly good mountain when you could just chill at the base camp? Yeah. Well, I chilled at the base camp, but yeah. that's me. Is there a competitive advantage? Like, is there something besides the coolness factor? Is there something that bringing your own compiler to the table really helps you with? Well, I, I, I was actually quite surprised because there's a lot of smaller technologies inside of compilers that you could use for every day-to-day stuff. Interesting. So one of the common things that happens when you have a website is you have, you've got SEO, which is a huge thing because mm-hmm. you want to drive up traffic. And one of the, the common things that you have to do is come up with your own URL re- rewriting structures and being able to parse this stuff so that if you've got this nice friendly URL, it maps to whatever the you need to The particular resource, yeah. yeah. So that's always going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't understand the, the nuances behind parsing, you didn't understand what it means to just take a string and then convert it into something else, right. mm-hmm. then that's when things, uh, you start running into problems. And I think we had a conversation like this, I think, with Phil Trollford at NDC in London, we were talking about one of the powers of building your own compiler is the way it helps you think about how computers work, right? That suddenly this concept of doing routing, rewriting and stuff, it's not that big a deal if you've already worked in the world of tokenization and... and it's and small potatoes. It's, yeah, like, it's easy. Really? You know, so it, it's, it, it's like swinging a weighted bat. The practice of, of working on compilers makes the regular day-to-day development that much simpler. Yeah, and in, in comparison, doing something like URL rewriting is like flicking around a toothpick. It's really yeah. simple. Very simple to do. That's so, interesting. So let's say we're in a, I'm in your compiler class 101 right now. You know, I've never built a compiler. I've used compilers my whole career, but I'm a C-sharp developer. What's the, where do we start and, and I don't mean let's have a compiler class in .NET Rocks, but, but what are the core concepts that people need to understand when they're, if they're going to build a compiler? So if you need to build a compiler, you just need to understand the types of parsers there are. Mm-hmm. So there's two types of parsers. There's the top-down parser and there's the bottom-up parser. Uh-huh. Uh, top-down parser just means that it starts from the, the general rules and it works its way down to the specifics. Okay. So you might have a rule that says match this string or this string. And it would, that would be a specific rule. And then you'd go from there and drill all the way down to your individual keywords. Mm-hmm. And that's top down. Okay. So bottom up is the opposite. It would actually look at the input and try to infer what the rule it's currently on based on what's uh, been seen so far. I see. And before you can do that, you, you have to have sort of a graph or a tree of, right, of, of all the... Uh, Keywords and things like that, and, and how they're nested, and yeah, everything you do. Else. Actually, the um, in in 
old school days, you really had to write your own parser and do all this stuff from scratch. Mm -hmm. But the analogy I like to use nowadays is that do you, when you're writing your common day-to-day -day applications, do you ever write anything from scratch? Mm -hmm. It's probably the case that you actually have existing frameworks that you use yeah. so that you get up, uh, get up and running very quickly. And it's the same principle with compilers. You never have to write anything from scratch, per se. Because it is a solved problem. This is about it is taking a very solved problem. So just take the pieces that you want. And, yeah. And, start and, and I think the most interesting part about compilers is not just the parsers, because that's really the boring stuff. If you get into like references like the Dragon Book, it's the dreaded Dragon Book. The dreaded Dragon Book? It's, it's quite literally a book that has a dragon on it, and it's very well known for very, being very dry. Right. And it doesn't... My only criticism of that book is never has a. It doesn't even have a GitHub repo. And it's so a book it's, about writing compilers. Yeah, okay. it, it gets into the whole parsing and, and, and all the phases. But it turns out you don't really need to know that to get started. Now, now, if you're going to write your own compiler, chances are you've written your own language, too. Is that necessarily true, or do you write a compiler that might work against C sharp or or well, you can PHP? Even write, I could even write a compiler on CSV files. Sure, it, yeah. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's always a chicken or the egg problem. I mean, where do you start? Yeah, right. Um, and the problem, and the, one of the talks I'm doing here at NDC is this idea that even though it's it seems pretty scary to write your own compiler, it, it's just it's a very well solved problem. And if you use the right tools and just focus on the semantics, you could actually do some pretty interesting stuff. Um, I, I, from my own experience of seeing a lot of people go through university, it, one of the problems that I do see is that when they get into a compiler course, they barely finish getting through the parser, mm -hmm. and then that's pretty much the end of the course. So you miss the good stuff. You miss the good stuff. Like, you know, things like type inferencing. I mean, how do you enforce immutability? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you do those things? I mean, you never really get that far simply because you're spending so much time on something that's already well known. Yeah. But you don't really jump to the other stuff and just try to figure it out. So what's the practical side of building your own compiler? I guess when you, if you have a domain-specific language that you're, that you're writing and you want to now turn that into uh, something that interacts with your existing apps or... Or what? Is that well, the practical side of it? That's a very practical side of it. And what you can do is you could have the language semantics be an abstraction over the things that you do on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Already, yeah. Yeah, so there, I know there's quite a few examples in, I think, Rubyland where they have these tests that look like there's just completely like in cucumber, English. cucumber, for yeah, example. Yeah, cucumber, yeah. yeah. And... And it makes it easy to just come up with these specs that look like they're just written right. in natural language. Right. And so, you know, is that, I suppose, easier doing, doing sort of natural language processing than a full-fledged logic flow compiler? Or once you get into it, is it six one, half dozen the other? Well, surprisingly, one of the things uh, that I learned is that when you have great tools like Antler, they pretty much abstract away a lot of the parser work for you. Okay, tell us about Antler. So Antler is a very, very mature uh, parser generator framework, and they generate uh, top-down recursive descent parsers. And what you do is you feed it a grammar that describes what the language looks like. Hmm. And they, and it's great about one thing that's great about their repo on GitHub is that they actually have languages for uh, grammars for. Uh, Java, Swift, Objective-C. Wow. Pretty much a lot of the stuff that you would see in your day-to-day -day de dev life, they actually have, have a grammar to it. The difference there is now that they have the grammar, the, the challenging part is really taking the, what you have inside of that grammar and then 
turning in into the abstract syntax tree, which which is basically your your in model in memory model of what the language is supposed right. to behave like. Right. And that so okay so unlike what I said before, your parser is what generates that tree. You don't have that tree before you parse it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Antler does the nice bits of where it turns the code into a parse tree. Right. And there's another step between uh, going from a parse tree to an abstract syntax tree. Okay. Because the parse tree is really the... I don't, I, the best way to describe it is like the physical in-memory representation of the language in all of its tokens. Right. Mm-hmm. And the abstract syntax tree is the part that abstracts that away and says, this is an if statement, this is a while statement, Got this it. is all the things that you would do inside of a language. Yeah. I just like the idea that somebody's built a library for building parsers. It's a parser generator. He's got a great quote that says, why spend three days on working on a parser when you can spend 25 years doing it? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's nice. I mean, th- I was totally sold on Antler because the guy, the guy who wrote it called it the honey badger of com- uh, parser generators. Right. <laughs> it's tenacious. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tenacious problem. It's a very hard problem, but it's a very well-solved problem. Right. So, yeah. once you have Antler, once you have this library that you could just say this is what my language looks like mm-hmm. that puts you in a state where you can start focusing on the real interesting stuff which is the language semantics right so all the secret sauce everything that you possibly can do with a compiler has everything to do with what you do with the abstract syntax tree after right. you've gotten past the language got it so so right if in in the case of a of a dsl you write your dsl you get your spec you run it through antler to create your abstract syntax tree and now the fun begins? Is that a- yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, it, there's different ways you could do it. Like, for example, the talk that I did, I'm going to do today, I, I did it two steps. So there's, you turn it into a parse tree, mm-hmm. and there, there's the, another set of trees called the abstract syntax tree. And what, that's, it's just a cleaned up version of the parse tree. Right. Because one, one of the reasons why I split it is because with Antler, you really don't control how it generates it. Because it's all generated for you. Right. But you want to have a clean structure and say, this is an if statement. This is what it is. Yeah. And these are the parameters associated with whatever your method you're calling. And that's the kind of thing that you'd have to have control over, especially when you're dealing with more complex languages like Roslyn or for C Sharp. Yeah. When, and actually figuring out how to execute some of this stuff is where it gets... Like I think about a link expression. And it, while it reads lovely and you can describe what it should do... Thinking about actually executing that, doing it, and you're responsible for that code, that's really, that's tough. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because when you make a compiler, let it, you just use link expressions just to build up those expressions. Right. It's basically, you're, you're, you could split it into smaller subtasks. Mm-hmm. So even though it seems really, really complex, it's not that complex at all it just comes apart into logical yeah it just steps. rolls back up into one massive expression and then you right. say compile so a lot of the stuff is based on known technology and it's it's not it's it's not as bad as say ORMs where you there's a huge debate of should I use one should I use one? yeah yeah this is a very solid technology that's been around since the day before you know computers yeah I mean, so it's definitely existed for a while it's just a, you know what am I going to get from this? Am I, this is make me a better developer long term. Well, like I said, I mean, you could live your whole life dri- driving auto, but when you actually understand how a car works, yeah, right, then it really just changes how you see things. Mm-hmm. So, so it changes how you see things. Does it ever help you in practicality in terms of being a developer? Like you, 
I know that if you have a car and you know auto mechanics, you can save a lot of money and actually not only that, but have an in, uh, intelligent conversation with your mechanic when he says, oh, no, your uh, timing belt needs to be changed and you know otherwise. Yeah, I mean, in, the, in that case, it's just, you could just say, look, I know you're, 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 you're driving up costs like crazy. You're not telling me the truth. This right. is how you actually do it. And this is the most minimal amount of thing we need to do in order to get it done. So where does that manifest itself in terms of practical day-to-day development help? If we're day-to-day development, it's just, I, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify because it's, it's like, I don't have a conversation with, you know, over coffee and sure. say, you know, I make compilers for fun. Right. And your, your, uh, your compiler doesn't have an ulterior motive to sell you more car parts, right? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. But I do yeah. like your example at the beginning of the show of just, you want to do a, a, a URL parse. Yeah. And that's, you know, we would just think of that in regex or, you know, fairly simple approaches. But to have it. you ever tried debugging regex? Oh, no. It's, it's, it's write-only language. Yeah. Is that even possible? I don't know. Yeah. I think there was a German word that, that it was basically saying... Schadenfreude. That's what it is. <laughs> no, no, no. There's another one. It was, it was back fifing, which is basically a, a face asking for a, a fist punch. Right. <laughs> Regex is, is, is basically the language that is asking for a face punch. Yes. Uh, I had a problem. I used Regex to solve it. Now I have two problems. I like I had a problem. So yeah. I, wrote, I wrote it in Java. Now I have a problem factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for certain classes, of this is a great training exercise for being effective at solving certain classes of problems. Yeah. And, Anything and, that's parsable. And it, it goes around that idea of being just a very well-rounded developer where you can just right. go up and down the chain yeah. where it's not just, you know, it's one specific technology. Yeah. You know how to put it together. Um, for example, with, with a lot of languages out there, it's nice to know how they actually implement certain things. Sure. So you could say, well, because um, another angle to this is, how do you put yourself in the language writer's shoes? Yeah. Why did, why did we go down this path? Why yeah. is this like this? Like, I could, I could count a million times where everybody was swearing that why did they allow nullable values in, in C Sharp? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. But you have to put yourself in the situation where you ask... Well, these were the constraints at the time. Right. These are the decisions they had to make. But it's hard to say that unless you actually put yourself in those shoes and say, I'm going to try to do this myself. Right. And you have a sense of what's hard. You know, this is, this is the problem we battle with the regular mortals all of the time. They have no idea what parts of our work are hard or easy. It yeah. all just seems mystical. And it really is magic, but it's, what surprises me is that there's no magic about it at all. This is, this is computer science. This yep. is not computer magic. Right, and it's real computer science. I mean, this is the stuff taught in computer science classes. Yeah, and, you, and just like anybody else who's gotten into the industry, I mean, you, pro, you pretty much taught yourself how to program. And in the same sense, you just take that one dozen steps further and mm. just teach yourself how to learn these languages and how right. to make it work. What it actually looks like and... And work through it. Make yourself a better programmer. That result. It sounds ha- like this is a skill that a polyglot programmer should have. It's yeah, part of understanding multiple languages. It's, it's another angle to it because you could say, I mean, I've heard many times on your show where you say, learn a new language every year. I, yeah. I, I would take it and say, why try go further and try to make a new language every year? Hmm. So have you, have you taken that plunge? Do you write, did you, have you written your own language or many yeah. of them? Well, I mean, I, I've gotten into 
I, I really wanted to pay homage to Lisp, so that's what I got into first. Uh, okay. So... You like them Why brackets would you or do parentheses that? or whatever they are? Because it's the only language where the code could actually write itself using its own syntax. <laughs> Wait a minute. With Rosalind, that's not possible now? Well, not unless you want to go through several trees worth of stuff and... In, in, and layers of abstraction to do it. So is that why people love Lisp so much, that like compilers and languages? Code is, in Lisp, code is data, data is code. So there's no, in Nemerly, one of the problems that you had is that there's this uh, disparity between what the language looks like mm -hmm. and what the actual abstract syntax tree looks like. So there's these little bracket syntax that you could get into that says generate this code, but it's not as smooth as Lisp where you, you Every single method call looks just like a natural part of the language. You can wow. expand on that. And you can't really do that with Nemerly, not, in, not, in, not without giving you the same smooth experience. Hmm. What blows me away about Lisp is that this stuff is 60 years old. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Predates object-oriented programming. It, it's even things like the, the common Lisp protocol is, I mean, that's the stuff object-oriented came out of. And, and, and we're still just trying to catch up and wrap our heads around it. Sure. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Oh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to call the fire department. Why? Oh, my grammar ate a bad cucumber and woke up at the top of an abstract syntax tree. <laughs> so I'm going to get her down. Okay. It's a long way to go. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> long way to go for a compiler joke, uh, but you yeah. got there. It's hard to make a compiler joke, <laughs> let me tell you. Especially uh, with such pressure. Yeah, but uh, actually, it's time to give away a copy of Active Reports, the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports, and sales performance budgeting and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Love it. And one of our original, original sponsors going all the way Absolutely. back. Absolutely. Great product. Great product. Yeah. So who's our winner, dude? Today's winner is Jeff Block. Congratulations, Jeff. Yeah. Golf clap for and you, he sir. He just won active reports from Component One. This is a, a great tool that was the first advertiser on .NET Rocks back in the data dynamics days. And uh, Jeff Block is a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, and he won just by being a member. That's and if right. you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club, but you've got to sign up to win. Philip, it's your turn. If you had five grand to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? <laughs> I would buy myself a nice Alienware kit and retire in the Bahamas somewhere. Nice. <laughs> nice. And would you be using that to write compilers and languages, or would you be gaming on it? Oh, hell no. I'd be gaming straight up. <laughs> I don't know about you. What's your favorite game? Right now, uh, well, I'm kind of split between Diablo and I'm waiting for Fallout 4. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> Fallout 4. Yes. Did you see that they, they have an edition, they have like a collector's edition that they actually give you a Pip-Boy? That's actually cool, but I'm more excited <laughs> over the fact that I could build my own village and then put auto turrets around it so I could start killing people with it. That's nice. The, and that yeah. is the important part. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's... You need to get in touch with the local community. <laughs> <laughs> Reach out and touch them with yes. 50 cal. 
<laughs> Fall, if you've never played Fallout, it's this hilarious interpretation of a 1950s post-apocalypse world back when you know atomic power was going to save everything but it's just gone horribly wrong and folks are coming out of these long-term bunkers and and the pip boy is this like wrist-based computer i saw it in the news that it looks huge actually yeah but it's this whole idea of using in the game it's your screen right so now the fact that they're going to incorporate that in the in the game that you actually play so it's like a second screen right you know you'll use your phone as information in the game it's pretty neat i gotta play yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, the proper rig. Five grand on a good gaming rig. And I'll tell you, that 34 inch curved display, that, that cinema wide display. You like it, we hear. I'm yeah. very happy with that screen. <laughs> that screen make me. You know, the only thing that do, we, you, do you like it yeah. or do you like it? I, I really like it. Now, if it was a 42 inch version, yeah. I would get that. Okay. It's larger and more curved, only more gooder. Because the correct amount is <laughs> bigger and more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing succeeds like excess. <laughs> George Dowker, thank you for that one. That's yeah. his, his line. Um, so, Philip, are there principles that guide you? And I'm going to get back to languages here. Are there principles that guide language development that have... Um, you know that everybody should observe are there definitely things that you should avoid and why well i think it's just the number one principle that i always go by is just this overwhelming curiosity just not to take things for face value right why do things work the way they do yeah because you know when you work day to day you don't think about these things because you've got all these tasks that you have to do but the key to actually becoming better is to understand what you're actually working on sure. at a very profound level. Yeah, I think about what Carl's been doing on the show with his C-sharp gotcha set. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not like the C-sharp team sat down and said, let's add some stuff that'll really piss people off. Right. How about yeah. that? They're like, just artifacts of the design's yeah. natural progression. And if, you were, and if you got yourself deep under the code that makes C-sharp C-sharp, you'd see why that gotcha exists. Exactly. I think that in in this particular case, once you start to understand those things, mm-hmm. it, it it makes you an overall better developer. Right. It, it's, right. You can't always connect everything to a use case or a story. No, but what you can overall is try to make yourself a better developer overall. So you know, one thing I could take away from this is even if I wasn't interested in building compilers, understanding IL is very valuable for any developer. You know, the, for in this case, you know, the person who was looking at uh, uh, the the watch, you know, the the watch variable window, you might be able to find out if you could look at the IL and actually see what's going on before you're just sitting there scratching your head from the outside guessing. Well, that's true, and the the other thing that it's it's quite quite hard to grasp when you get to, down to the level of understanding the IL is that when you're working with C sharp or VB or or F sharp, you're not actually working with the primary language of .NET. You're yeah. working on the second class language yep. of .NET. The first class language is always going to be IL. How yeah. do you learn IL in the first place? Um, basically, what I used to do is I'd write a C-sharp program like Hello World. Yeah, Reflector or Ildasm. No, I didn't even use Reflector. I, I, I stuck with Ildasm for the first 10 yeah. years. Ildasm. And you just go in there and you just see how it looks. And, of course, there's reflection.emit. And then what mm-hmm. you do is you just copy what the dumps look like and then just try to tweak it and see yeah. what it, how it works. See how it and changes. Can, yeah. can you, does reflection.emit show you IL line numbers or does ILDASM show you C-sharp line Il-dasm numbers? ILDASM is probably one of the most 
underrated but powerful tools that you could use for yeah. the framework because there's what I like to call the God mode yeah. in Ildasm where you could just switch things on and you could see the metadata tokens right. inside of just Ildasm. And this stuff has been there since forever. Right, even yeah. before Reflector. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just went yeah. searching and here's a version of Ildasm specifically for .NET Framework 4.6. Like, this is a maintained, up-to-date tool provided by Microsoft that I think the vast majority of people know nothing about. Yeah, I was one of the guys that when .NET first came out was hired, um, the company was Deep Training that I was part of. And we were hired to deliver dot, the .NET content, you know, PowerPoints and demos and stuff to, you know, people all over the United States. And ILDASM figured prominently in that, in that demo. So I learned from .NET 1.0 what ILDASM was and, and be able to, to understand. But I took one look at it and I was like, ugh. <laughs> well, it's basically object-oriented assembler. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's yeah. one of the things I found spending time with Aldaz was just being reminded very thoroughly that this thing is object oriented all the way down. It, yeah. This is really all like yeah. turtles all the way down. Turtles all, all the way down. down. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it's great because one of the things that not a lot of people say about IL is that it's a very stable language. Right. The last time it actually changed is when we went from CLR 1.0 to CLR 2. Right. There's n there's been very little changes, if at all. I think I, guess I, th I thought it was some stuff in four, and that was about it. Like nothing happened in the three frame, and no, because the instruction set is 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 this stable. stuff. Yeah, yeah this stuff is going to be there though. for twenty, thirty years on. Yeah, it's really interesting. They this added features, but they didn't really change. No, I mean they added frameworks and, yeah. and and new libraries, but they didn't really change the underlying yeah. runtime. Of course, it runs more efficiently now than it did back in uh, two point oh. Yeah, but for the most part. The, the actual instruction set is the same. That's interesting. And you do have the benefit of, you know, languages might come and go, but if you understand the underlying framework mm -hmm. and understand the IL, then you can pretty much do whatever you want. Are you able to disassemble the framework elements themselves, like, let's say, String Builder? Where are, you able, are you able to just take a look at the source, yeah, the you, IL source of that? Yeah, you can. Like, for example, you could just go into the binary and then see what it looks like. Um, and has but that I, helped I guess you? has that helped you at all? Being able to disassemble well, framework elements that you might not understand. Not how so they much work? nowadays because everything's open source, right? Yeah. Like, but back in the day when I couldn't figure out what they were thinking when they were doing this certain thing, right. it was good to just be able to drill down into that. Yeah, you don't have to ask the question. You have to look at the documentation. You yeah. go look at the code that's being generated. Yeah, pretty much. Right. And the code is really the source of truth in that. Yeah, side. it's the truth ultimately, but you just take time to read it. And it's kind of funny to think that after all this time, still the best way to understand IL is to write in one of the higher level languages, get it generated in the IL, and then look at it and tinker well, with it. That's basically how I started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's amazing because just, you could I just... I wonder if there's a better way. They don't really teach IL class, They do don't they? teach IL, yeah. Uh, well, they should. Maybe they should. They really Maybe should. you should do a Pluralsight uh, video on IL. I, I would love to, uh, but... We'll see about that. Yeah. 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 So that's a whole other set of work. But yeah, and I totally dig this, just like working on compilers, this is about understanding the tools you use at a much deeper level. Yeah. Or what I like to call going manual versus automatic. You could always go auto, but. Yeah. And, but it's better to know how it works while you're, go, while you're doing auto. Have you dug into Java uh, bytecode at all? JVM? Um, not as much as, not much as I'd like to. I mean, I, I've been mired in. Yeah. In the CLR land and, and bytecode. Yeah. I got pretty far with it, though, but I, I stopped it reassembling stuff. Wow. Okay. 
Did, have, can you give us a story of you know one of those times where your understanding of IL made all the difference for a project? Um, well, back when I used to work for uh, when I was in consulting, mm-hmm. one of the common things that we'd run into is that for banks, they would actually have pieces of code that no longer have an author nor the source code. Oh wow! So one of the th- things that really helped me out is I could just disassemble it and say, "Here you go." Right. This is how we can start injecting hooks into it. So right. one of the common things you can do with IL, since just, it's just text that's just dumped out, mm-hmm. if you write it using just a straight text editor, no magic, yeah. and insert, say, an interface call, mm-hmm. you could extend the life of a product simply because you could start injecting uh, interface implementations mm, in right. there. Mm. And, and when you start doing things like taking IOC containers and plugging them in, and they have this kind of pluggability by default. Yeah, the interceptor model. Yeah, then basically you've, you've got you could extend the life of something that doesn't actually have any source code anymore. Absolutely. You know, this whole text thing just reminded me, thinking back to the 1.0 days, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure I saw this demo, but it was, you opened Notepad, you wrote a little C-sharp in Notepad, and then you took that text file and sent it through the compiler to generate the IL, and then linked that into a DLL. I've like, done that. Yeah, there was no studio yeah. involved. Like we were just trying to get down to the bare essentials of this is what was .NET was doing for us. But I was, we were going right f- with the compiler. You know, I was using the VB compiler in Notepad to create a web service in you know seven lines of code, right? And outputting that to a DLL, copying it up to a web, and uh, running it, and then out off it went. Which at that time, you think in the 2000, 2001 time frame, that was magic. It was magic, yeah. You know, it was so hard to do that. We take it for granted today, but right. back then it, it was a big deal. And, and it's so ironic because when you say somebody edits in Notepad and then runs it through a compiler, they think you're hardcore. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's just... I mean, it's like the other scale of, the scale of irony when, you know, back in the days, that's what you just had. Yeah, that's, sure. Yeah, AKA the tools. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> My brother is a Java programmer and still does everything by hand. Just a text editor and, and my there's a lot of de- Well, you know, there's a lot of .NET developers and developers in general that really like command-line tools, and they operate that way. Yeah. Well, Many it, of our listeners do. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on how you work and what, whatever works best for you. Sure. Yeah. The, the levels of understanding are what you want to use. So once you're thinking in terms of the text file that is that IL, you could be making all kinds of changes. Like, you could really do anything you wanted. Pretty much. Um, is, is this just a security exploit at this point? Or is it, I mean, you were doing it very useful things with it, doing interceptors to, to make modifications to existing code where the source was gone. Well, as, you know, the Spider-Man rule, with great power comes the great responsibility. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't really judge somebody by what they know. It's what, what they do with it. Right, yeah. So, with this kind of stuff, it just it gives you a lot of power to, to change things. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you do have a responsibility because you do get to certain levels where the documentation starts to vanish. Right. And uh, moral responsibility kicks in that you just, you just don't break stuff. Yeah. Because right. it's really a no man's land in the Very sense Very undebuggable. Yes. Yeah. Like, I have spent hundreds upon hundreds of hours fighting with um, PE Verify. Like, What's PE Verify? So PE Verify is the tool that you use when you run uh, IL Assembler, right? And that's the one that basically gives you a thumbs up or thumbs down as to whether or not the EXE or DLL file that you create is uh, in a good state and that could be run by the common language runtime. Mm, okay. Right. Okay. So it's 
So this is your syntax validator, essentially, for the changes that you've made. Yeah. It's like the dominatrix of IL. It's, 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 it's quite punishing sometimes, but it can be quite rewarding. What's your safe word? Okay. <laughs> Rocks takes another turn. Reminds me of the Rory days. There you go. Banana! <laughs> Banana! Uh, um, okay. So are, are you just by having a .NET app, even if it's not, or even if it is obfuscated, you're still in IL, and can anybody go into a process that's running in memory who understands IL and, and change things in memory as it's running? Yeah. So that one's... I, I, I'm, I'm still talking with John McCoy on this one, though, but one of the interesting... He's one of the guys who's done really wild security Yeah, and he's yeah. really pushing the limits, and one of the things I really have to plug is that he's come up with an idea where he can inject um, arbitrary code into a running process, spawn another CLR within that process, and then use the new CLR that he just spawned to attack the existing one. Oh, wow. Pretty it, much it, the... Yeah, this is like the Matrix version of where you got the bullets flying toward you and you see it all drop. <laughs> sort of a, a model for the modern virus. Yeah, so it's... But it, there's... Like I said, it really depends on what you want to do with this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things that you can do. Like one of the things that he was just telling me about is this idea that you can actually take assembler and stick it in a piece of memory and then spawn a delegate that points to that assembly. And for .NET, it looks like any other delegate. Right. You could execute it, but it's got the speed of native code. Now, do you have to have admin access to do that kind of thing, to mess with somebody else's process? Not necessarily. Really? Um, there's a lot of even white hat tools like Metasploit that will give you uh, elevated privileges and allow you to escalate up to administrator so are, level. Are there any uh, things that you can do in regular .NET world to protect against that kind of thing? Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> what about like secure string is one. I mean, really, because we're really interested in protecting data, passwords, and things like that not necessarily because uh, there have been quite a few instances where even though it might be encrypted on disk when it hits memory mm. it needs to be decrypted to be used yeah and if you're able to sniff into but that a memory a secure yeah. string is encrypted in memory yeah but there's going to be some point along that trail where it's just a string yeah yeah and if you find that it needs to be that, used right? Right. right at some point you have to apply it yeah and as we all know strings are immutable you right and it just sits there, and you have no control when it actually gets disposed. So yeah. you, if you find the right place, you find it in the heap, you're pretty much done for. Yeah, I like the idea. Secure string has got an encrypted version, but at some moment, like when you go to validate that password, you've got to f decrypt it and then apply the hashes to it to actually validate so the So here's the moral of the story. When John McCoy knocks on your door and says, hey, can I use your computer for a minute? Say no. <laughs> no, no, you may not. <laughs> no, I think the moral of the story is like, show me the source code first. Yeah. Yeah. Take right. a good yeah. long look. Yeah. What's going on there? And the C sharp may not be the actual source you're dealing with there. Look yeah. at the IL. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of interesting stories with that character, but I think that's for another show. But yeah, without a yeah. doubt. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's an interesting set of questions. And that's, I think one of the issues here is, you know, how quickly do we end up with a dark hat on when we're working at this level? 
Yeah, it's 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 really a gray area because you could do so many things. Sure. Um, some people in the security field do it just for the sake of just hitting the edge and seeing how far they could go. To right. be able to do it, yeah. It's, no, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like mountain climbing where you've got some people who like going all the way up Yosemite without any rope. Yeah. I mean, why would you do that? It's it's pretty crazy in the same sense that there's some people who really want to take this idea of reverse engineering to its logical absurdity or logical right, extreme right. and just see how far they could take it. Well, in, in seeing how far they can take it, you find threat factors that you didn't yeah. have. And you learn a lot of things that you just wouldn't really think about in your day-to-day life. Right. Just hoping that we, you know, what comes out of that is a better understanding of how to actually protect your code. Because Microsoft's made a bunch of attempts here. Remember, you know, code security and stuff? Like a lot of code that. Code access security. Code access yeah. security. That just said it died. And well, it was really difficult to implement. Yeah. And then guess what? Developers don't like security, no. especially on their code. Yeah, it's, oh, it's always, it's always going to be a cat and mouse game in that sense. Sure. So, but... I just at this particular moment don't think I, that the mice have any clue that there's a cat around. <laughs> no, it's it's basically the mice don't even know anything else exists. Yeah, uh, they think it's mice all the way down. Yeah, mice all the way down. All right, so for one of the next shows, I'm going to have to give the provenance of that phrase about turtles because there is a story there. Yeah, of course, there is. Yeah. Uh, so have you done your talk yet? Not yet. That's coming up today? Yeah. It's going to be interesting because basically what I do is I run down through the entire process of building a compiler in less than an hour. Right. And wow. I'm going to do it two ways. So essentially you've got an interpreter and a compiler. Right. So hmm. it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's going to be a really... It's surprising because when I actually went through, the, through it, you don't necessarily need to know so much about the actual theory per se. Right. As long as you know your C sharp, you know your basic visitor pattern mm-hmm. um, what you is should the be visitor a, pattern so the visitor pattern is a way that allows uh, a pattern that allows you to uh, visit different types of uh, node types within a tree so that you could it looks like you're adding new operations to it so right. for example you might have a, a, like uh, an expression like one plus one and in that particular expression, that would be parsed out as a number node, and then the operation itself would be a plus, mm-hmm. and then there'd be another number node because it's a one plus one. Right. Okay. So with the visitor, depending on whether what kind of operation it is, what, it, what you could do with it is start adding uh, different kinds of behaviors to the language itself. So for example, I can make a compiler that goes through that and says, if I see one plus one, I'm going to cr- compile something so that it outputs one plus one. Mm-hmm. But I if see. I see an interpreter, I could just, uh, if I have an interpreter, I could just go through it and have it just add the numbers together and then oh, just output the result. So it. it's basically like I have one static structure but I've got a whole lot of different operations that I could add to it. It's almost th- like an interface. Well, it is an interface, yeah. actually. So the nice part about this is that this is fairly standard across compilers. You'll see mm. this in Roslyn. Uh, you'll see this in any type of uh, compiler technology because they really have to work heavily within trees. But, I mean, it's, it's really interesting stuff, especially once you get past the parts and work into the semantics. Mm-hmm. So yeah. definitely something to look forward to today. And this is such a great crowd for that kind of conversation, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the NDC crowd is kind of all over the map. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, in all the years that I've been coming here, I always get some really interesting off the wall questions. What's yeah. the biggest challenge you've ever had from a from a attendee? Um, a Spanish keyboard layout. Ah, oh, interesting. Wow. So I crashed and burned in one NDC. Um, Oslo 
talk and the problem I had was the only person that actually had a working laptop was Hadi. Hadi Hariri, oh, yeah. yeah. And of course, from so, Spain. So the, the story goes, and, and he's going to hold me to this though. I, <laughs> I, I, I was one hour before the presentation. I walk up to Hadi. He said, Hadi, let me, let me borrow your laptop. I'll name my third child after you. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, well, you don't have three kids. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, I'm going to get there someday. <laughs> I like that you led with third child. <laughs> you weren't even going to give him the first. <laughs> well, I was reserving two slots in case the other two talks would fail. <laughs> It's awesome. I love it. <laughs> All right, man. So where are we going to find you? Are you, are you blogging somewhere? Are you, are you, well, I'm usually lurking around Twitter, so you can reach me there. Twi- Twitter's always a good place. Yeah. I see you there every so, so often. Uh, you could check Twitter me. Twitter handle? Uh, Philip Lariano. Right. Fairly simple. The whole name. Yep. Whole name. Great. Uh, and you could also find me on um, GitHub, a lot of the projects that I work on. Yep. And you could also catch me at a, a Fairfax Media or Domain. .com.aid and we, we do a lot of awesome stuff there. Awesome. Fantastic. Philip, thank you very much. It's been great. It was my pleasure. Always enlightening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a